Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I am honored with the presence of Sister Husay Mujeddidi. She is a mentor, lecturer, and spiritual counselor, as well as an organizer. And she is very active in the, in the local Bay Area here with our Muslim community. Sister Husay, thank you so much for being on the show today. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much, Kareem. I'm honored to be here with you today. The pleasure is mine. Tell us a little bit more about the work that you do and, and why you do what you do. Alhamdulillah. Um, okay, inshallah. I, um, uh, as I, when you and I were speaking earlier, I was telling you that it's a little difficult for me to answer that question because, alhamdulillah, I've been blessed to serve the community in more than one way. Um, I started off as an organizer, a volunteer. This was uh, back in the uh, 90s, in the mid-90s, right here in the heart of the Bay Area in Hayward. Um, there was a little-known school called Islamic Studies School, and this is where Sheikh Hamza Yusuf uh, began teaching his classes before he opened up the Zaytuna Institute, which is now the Zaytuna College. Um, so at the Islamic Studies School, alhamdulillah, I was the lead female organizer, and I was able to uh, facilitate his classes and then also do other programs with him as well. Um, and from that, I began to uh, do study circles with the sisters in the community, and then eventually weekly halakas. Um, so every we called it the Friday night halaka. I know it's not a very original name, but <laughs> at that time, uh, it, uh, it just was a staple for us, a regular uh, meeting uh, place that we would um, we would actually rotate from home to home. And um, alhamdulillah, you know, sometimes we'd have up to 40, 50 sisters, you know, squeezed into apartments or, or homes. But we would have these weekly gatherings, and it was an opportunity for us to, you know, learn together, but also just to talk and to connect. And eventually um, sisters would come up to me um, with more, you know, one-on-one -on -one sort of uh, you know, issues that they were dealing with, spiritual issues like uh, with regards to, you know, their practice, whether it was hijab or prayer. Um, and then, you know, as we would get to know each other more, it would become more personal and uh, eventually led to, um, you know, just problems that they were experiencing within their families or with their spouses so word started to spread that, you know, I was offering this type of, even though it was very informal and it was usually with people that I had known for a while, but it did sort of start to spread that I was offering services like, you know, th uh, counseling services to people. And then eventually couples would come to me and ask me to meet with, uh, with them, you know, to help them through their marriage. Um, and I, I wanted to point out that this was, you know, again, in the, around the nineties, early two thousands, when there was just such um, a big stigma around mental health. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were just, it, it wasn't, you know, nowadays, alhamdulillah, we have so many different Muslim mental health professionals that offer services and, and we have organizations. And so it's just, it's much easier to get those types of services. But a lot of people at that um, time were just not interested in even going down that route. Right. So they would, you know, they would uh, turn to, as you know, you know, the imams or the people in, in the masjids, uh, masajid, and then, you know, to people like myself who were offering these types of classes and, you know, that they found some sort of connection with. So, you know, um, that carried on for quite a few years. Uh, we were doing not only, um, you know, weekly programs and one-on-one and -on -one sessions, but I, I ended up also doing um, like therapy groups. We would actually, we actually did a divorce support group for a while, which was really great. Yeah. A lot of the sisters, alhamdulillah. Um, and then around uh, 2010, and I, I had actually moved out of the Bay Area. I went to Southern California by this point. But in 2010, my um, cousin, who you know very well, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Nafisa Sikandri, she, um, she's a clinical psychologist. 
she was actually working in the Bay at that time and, and found that there was just such a great need for services for the Muslim community. But again, because of the same stigma, she was having a real difficult time um, connecting or making inroads into the community. And she knew that I was well connected. So she had this really great idea of starting a website together where we both could you know, provide content. Um, she would bring the clinical perspective and I would bring the more Islamic perspective on issues from everything, including substance abuse to depression, um, you know, to uh, just just so many different things that you know very well are, are plaguing our community, but to provide content through the, the Islamic lens. Right. Uh, so alhamdulillah, that really opened up a lot of doors for me personally to um, you know, sort of solidify my role as a mental health advocate, as a lecturer, as a spiritual counselor. And um, that's really what I've been, alhamdulillah, uh, doing for close to, you know, a little bit over 20 years, you know, just really working on that. And, and now, alhamdulillah, I, um, I'm, I'm offering monthly classes at Ta'lif Collective, which is here in Fremont, for women sp- specifically. Uh, in addition to that, I offer educational workshops and, and other classes for students. But at my primary focus is on self-development, spirituality uh, for women. So alhamdulillah, that's that's what I'm focusing on now. MashaAllah, that's wonderful. It almost sounds to me like you didn't choose the job, the jobs chose <laughs> you, right? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly, actually, I've actually said that before, that, um, you know, Allah, he paves your way. I had, you know, a different, I didn't know that I would ever be doing the work that I'm doing right now. I, I, I went into education. I've always taught, alhamdulillah, I love children. But I feel like my calling has really been to work within uh, the community in this capacity as an advocate, mental health advocate, and as a spiritual counselor, alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. Now, this is a great opportunity to kind of get a window into some collective consciousness among some of the sisters. So I'd love to, you know, pick your brain a bit on, on some important questions. So first off, from your observations, Sister Husay, what are some of the most common challenges that Muslim women face as Muslim women? Mm, that's a great question, mashallah. Um, I think, you know, just in my experience, I always come back to the same thing, even through, through the years I've seen the same pattern of really um, struggling with identity and asserting their rights, I think would be right up there. It's probably one of the things that I feel it's sort of like, you know, an overarching problem that has, you know, many symptoms to it and then other problems trickle down from it. But this is, in my observation, just having, again, that sense of, you know, um, who they are and what rights they have as Muslim women. You know, some of them were uh, raised are, are raised um, in, in abusive or oppressive homes, so they never really had, you know, examples of strong female leadership to learn from. Uh, other women, you know, I think adopt cultural views about the role and place of women, right. um, which is, you know, in many cases just not congruent with Islam. Um, and so they, again, just having this identity of like, uh, for example, uh, you know, I was looking actually this morning, I, I, you know, opened my Facebook account, you know, how Facebook shows you memories. Um, so it, it popped mm-hmm. up, you know, a memory from a, a few years ago where I had written a post about an interaction I had with a, with a sister. She was, she was a little bit older, but I remember this very freshly in my mind. It was a few years ago, I was at an event and the sister came up to me. And she just had tears in her eyes. And she said, you know, I have to tell you something. I just feel I have to tell you something. And I said, okay. So I pulled her to like a private little corner. And she just began to tell me she's never shared this with anybody. In 35 years, I believe she said, 
that she um, was a victim. She's a victim of, of a domestic violence. Even now, she's still married to her husband, who's been abusing her for over 30 years. And, you know, just tragic, uh, the stuff she was sharing with me. Um, and I, you know, I'd asked her at one point if she'd ever, you know, considered or tried leaving him. Mm. And she said, this, these are her own words. She actually said to me, she would never dare because in her culture, you know, and I emphasize mm. that even in my post in her culture, the only time a woman leaves her husband's house is in a coffin. Wow. You know, these are her exact words. Um, you know, so these are the types of really p- problematic cultural views and notions that I think a lot of women in our community ha- struggle with. And even when you present to them, you know, the Islamic view of so many of these things, they still fall back um, on that. And I think, you know, there's there's spiritual abuse that happens oftentimes, you know, with with elders in the community, you know, who who I think, you know, spiritually manipulate, uh, you know, their children into thinking certain things, you know, about their role, you know, filial piety, as you know, as Muslims, this is really important in our faith tradition, but I think a lot of times people abuse it. And so you find women struggling with their identity because in one path they want to, you know, assert themselves, they want to speak up for themselves, but then they have this guilt that they're doing something wrong, that their parents told them that no, a wife should never, for example, you know, speak back to her husband. So even if he's abusing you, you know, you don't, you're just, it's just better for you to stay silent, you know, or, you know, if you're being taken advantage of by someone, there's just these very passive, subservient sort of cultural, you know, views that I think women, uh, you know, really, really struggle with. And so when you try to, you know, empower them and teach them all of the beautiful things about our tradition, I find that this is, this is a common problem I've encountered with a lot of sisters. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think this is important, the concept of identity, and perhaps some of these issues that you're you're sharing now and and many people have observed and even tasted, you know, I've been giving a lot of thought to this um, experience or phenomena of of being the immigrant. Um, Because sometimes we're like, oh, you know, immigrants, and and there's sometimes a lot of negativity, like all this back home stuff. Um, But I, I, I I sometimes like, and I was thinking about this actually after um, doing episode 10 with Dr. Nafisa, because we did talk a bit about the immigrant um, mentality or attitude or value when it came to marriage or how to do things, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I thought to myself, you know, imagine if like I had to take my family to China, like right now, and go build a life there and still try to be Muslim and have identity, you know, strong identity and, and cohesiveness and our sense of self. I could I could easily see myself being almost like you know, extra paranoid or cautious or even strict, right? Because it's like now you're in this whole new ocean that is unpredictable. It's so different from back home. And some of the stuff that we did back home, which we may not even know why we're doing it, again, it's just like, well, this is what our forefathers did concept, right? Um, And then we come, you know, our parents came here and our grandparents and so on and so forth. And then there was a, in order to survive and have predictability in future success and maintenance, you know, we became very sometimes stuck in our ways, or we had, you know, very powerful labels and expectations as to how our family, our sons, our daughters were meant to be. And this, of course, extends into who you're going to marry and why, whether you like it or not, this is the overarching, you know, the overall picture of how we're going to survive and prosper in this new, you know, environment, which can be very alienating at times. And so I was just kind of, you know, I want to put that out there, because on the one hand, I think we have to understand 
the socio-psychological phenomena of the immigrant who comes and, and tries to build a life in a new land, which is very difficult. I mean, if, again, any of us picture doing the same thing right now in China with our families, right? Not knowing the language, not being surrounded by people who identify with your religion, and so on and so forth, I could I could easily see, you know, how some of the things that we observe here in America could happen, right? Even for us, right? So so this is very important because now when you talk about one of the main challenges is identity, it's like, yeah, I mean, if I'm being bombarded constantly with with how I am supposed to be or how I'm supposed to look on paper, rather than accepting that, you know, Islamic existentialism, if you will, is all about the human project of becoming. You're never this static, you know, creature that has to just fulfill these checkpoints and boxes and you just go through the conveyor belt of what it means to be Muslim according to the family or the culture. Um, and so I, I think this is just, I just wanted to kind of give a, a big picture here of maybe explaining sociologically and psychologically what's happening and why some of these things we're observing as the next generation Muslims in the United States or, or otherwise, why these things are there. And I think one of the major shifts in, in our generational transition as Muslims is perhaps we'll, when we start to recognize that immigrant um, uh, phenomena and the adjustment phase, that some of these values or ways of doing things, in a sense, almost become obsolete. And we need to kind of break out of some of these chains because some of these chains, of course, are negative, right? Not everything, right, that our families bring from back home is bad, so to speak. But but certainly there are things which are clearly almost, I would say, obsolete or impractical these days. What are your thoughts about that, that feedback? I agree 100%. I'm so glad actually you brought that because it provides that context that's so important. I'm, I'm just sort of speaking of general observations, but you do definitely need to provide the context of why these things occur for people to understand. So yes, even in my you know, sessions or, or my, you know, talks about these things, we always talk about that, that yes, there is, you know, we, we can't necessarily assign blame to our parents and our, you know, older generations, because like you said, they dealt with things that we can't even fathom dealing with. Like my own parents, for example, you know, they came here as refugees. And like you said, to just completely leave everything, um, it's come to a new place and have to start over. It's very, very difficult. My, my parents did it with five young children. Um, and, you know, really, you know, just struggled a lot with that. So I don't, I, in my own experience, of course, I don't blame uh, my parents or any of my uh, elders in my family for having the, the you know, that, like you said, that this is need for self-preservation, because absolutely, you know, coming to a new place, this uh, fear of losing your identity, fear of your children not having any connection with their heritage or where they come from is so real. And so we have to validate that. But I think when it comes to wanting to empower Muslim women, this can definitely be a challenge if you, if, if Muslim women can't see the context for what, how you just so beautifully explained it and just, you know, kind of are, are, are um, blinded by guilt, which I think is really uh, what I struggle with is because they, I can see that, you know, that the, that these, these um, thoughts that they have are just are debilitating them. You know, they're, they're not able to move forward and like you say, grow and really develop themselves spiritually because they're so, um, you know, fearful of doing something wrong. And then, you know, this, uh, so it just gets very confusing. So we have a lot of work to do, but I, I do love that you brought that up because like I said, the context is so valid and it's so important. And we're, you know, um, and this is, you know, why these discussions are so fruitful because we can hopefully provide 
people from, you know, with, with a perspective that they might not have otherwise seen it. Uh, so alhamdulillah. Now, would you say that as far as the challenge of identity and constructing a healthy sense of self from your observation has to do with kind of filtering out some of the cultural and familial expectations versus one's individual needs, one's, um, you know, religious uh, needs or, or pursuits. I mean, tell us a little bit more about what are some of the pain points of identity issues with some Muslim women that you've observed? Yeah, no, I, I, I think, alhamdulillah, I do something, for example, um, when I, when I, when, in one of my talks, it's called um, context framing. I really think it's a powerful sort of tool to use where you get sort of like starting a clean slate. You want to look at yourself as, you know, a sum of many parts, but you need to really look at, you know, who you are, why you are the way you are. So everything you just mentioned from, you know, personality traits, individual personality, culture, all of this matters. And I think sometimes, you know, people don't really take the time to look at themselves as, you know, uh, in this person, from this, you know, perspective of like, who am I? What are the parts that make me who I am? So I love doing that with sisters. Um, and you know, we oftentimes do talk about, yes, let's talk about, you know, the family dynamics that you were raised in. Um, so I love talking about, for example, birth order. I know it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that people don't think about, but even just as recent as Wednesday, I was doing a workshop with teens and I, you know, I talked about how birth order can really impact you know your experience in life and so let's you know let's talk about that and then we talked about temperament and personality traits and then of course culture all of these things are so important so when you're looking at you know self-development I think you have to look at everything you know everything that makes you who you are as as far as you can you know um, assess you know there's certain things uh you know, um, that, that aren't so, they're not tangible that, you know, that you can really break down, but uh, things like this, you know, uh, I think are really helpful to people because they start to look at themselves as, you know, like you said, works in progress. And so whatever, um, things that they might want to work on, they don't look at it like I'm just this, you know, person I can never change and I am who I am. I, I'm not, you know, I try to really break that, you know, idea down for people that know, we, as Muslims, we really do strive for excellence. And so regardless of your personal experiences or, you know, the different things that you've been through in life, you can always try to, you know, reach for, for you know, for the, for better and, and higher and try to really work on yourself. So, so yeah, alhamdulillah, I think, you know, culture, in addition to all the other things are really important to look at. Absolutely, absolutely. And this idea of context framing is, is very important. You know, this idea mm-hmm. of we have to know the surrounding conditions of what makes us us, right? Exactly. And, um, and I've noticed that sometimes, you know, certain uh, individuals in our community, it's almost like the relationship between them and let's say their parents or extended family is a, a kind of a one-way channel. In other words, it's only cu- funneled down from the families, the authoritative figures in the family down to the person. Yes. And what ends up happening is now the individual is simply almost like a, a vehicle for absorption and receiving and being reactionary rather than having a sense of autonomy right or or differentiation and i think this is a very common theme that you find in some people it's like they haven't been able to individuate from the from the family in a healthy fashion and so everything's about just reacting or responding or absorbing from this one channel of of communication this one track pipeline that's just being kind of funneled down into you right subhanallah i i totally have the same observation like you said to to really find your individuality to find your voice this is the type of messaging that 
I'm, uh, you know, really trying to work on with sisters, especially because I feel like, and, and maybe, you know, this is a cultural, you know, sort of uh, dynamic, but I feel like in some cultures, that expectation is more on for for the women, for the, for the, you know, for the daughters that you really do just sort of, you know, continue and ex- become that extension of your parents. Whereas, um, boy, you know, the, the men or the boys are, are allowed to kind of find their own path, you know, that they're allowed to sort of pursue their own. I mean, not always, but not I'm all just, the time, by the way. <laughs> yeah, not all the time. yeah I, I don't, I don't like to make generalizations, but I, I, you know, I'm just speaking from my experience because I work more with women, but I do feel like I run into this a lot where there's just this incredible amount of power. I mean, um, excuse me, uh, incredible amount of pressure for the women to just be in line, you know, don't, you know, don't basically, you know, uh, rattle, you know, anything, just take the orders, listen, obey, do as you're told to do, whether it's from, you know, your, your parents. And then eventually, you know, in, in your, in the marital context, the same, just, just do what you're told, but actually finding their own individuality is, is usually a struggle for a lot of sisters. Right. No, for sure. And there's definitely a lot of double standards that exist, no doubt. Um, but just as someone who's also worked with many Muslims, I've definitely, you know, encountered cases where men were in very similar positions, right? Where, let's Correct. say, they were also constantly absorbed um, into the, whatever the mom wants or the, or the dad wants. And, um, and they also are suffering from the same struggle, right. Of having that sense right, of individuation right. and becoming into their own manhood. And then they, they struggle a lot in, in their own marriages later because they never had that sense of assurance of their own choices and direction. It's like you do everything your parents tell you to do. And then by next week you're married and, and all of a sudden you're living in a whole new household and you're expected to be this like wonderful husband and, and guidepost, right? It's like they, there's no training for that, right? It's like we're we're giving we're giving job posts sometimes to individuals that have no experience or prerequisite. Right. No, you're right. And actually, as the more I think about it, you're right because oftentimes, especially when I when I look at couples, a lot of the problems do stem from you know this sort of you know just uh, it's a strong. Um, you know, sense of duty that the, that the husband will have towards his parents that affects the marriage, right? So the wife is like, well, you know, I have needs, I have wants and desires, but he can't seem to pull away from that expectation or those expectations. So it affects, it impacts the marriage negatively. So you're right, it, it definitely affects both. Um, but, you know, alhamdulillah, we, we speak to our experiences. So I see far more women with these issues, struggling with these issues. So... So what are some issues or challenges that Muslim women have faced uh, from other Muslim women? So within the community, like some challenges that some sisters have because of some other Muslim women in their community. Oh, sure. Um, Of course. I think, you know, competition. I mean, this is I don't know if it's you know necessarily exclusive to Muslim women. I think women in general, there is this really toxic sort of culture of um, being competitive. and, And so jealousy, there can be judgment. And I know, you know. We've we've talked about that several times in in the course of you know during my halakas and 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 you know different programs that I've done about just this um, you know women pitting other women against each other um, whether it's in you know relationships you know with friends and and um, or you know just just generally like for example 
um, women who wear hijab. You know, there's a, this a lot of uh, you know expectations of Muslim who wear, women who wear hijab, and so I've I've dealt with their you know grievances about how they constantly feel scrutinized for everything they do, and that they have to you know wear just bear the burden of being representatives of the entire faith, and and the most judgment they they deal with is often from other Muslim women. Um, that if they make any mistakes, they're shamed, you know, and they're really looked down upon. And then I've had the opposite, you know, where women who don't wear hijab feel that there's a lot of self-righteousness, um, you know, from women who do. And so they don't feel like there's a lot of inclusion, um, even in, in spaces where there should be at the, at the, you know, in the masajids, for example, a lot of women have dealt with, um, people just judging them based on their, you know, attire, their appearance, wearing nail polish, wearing makeup, you know, things that are just, um, none of nobody else's business, but for some reason, unfortunately, um, you know, people do feel the need to to comment on those types of things. So, th- those things are very uh, common. I mean, I think alhamdulillah, you know, with I don't know, I you know, I, I'm kind of looking at it also from you know a, different ages because you know we were in our 20s and a lot of the girls were single, so there's I think a little bit more competition. And then you have, you know, um, once you become married and have children, there's a different level of competition. Now it's about your kids and your home and how what kind of a homemaker you are. So mm-hmm. unfortunately it kind of, you know, just really in every area and every phase of, of a life, the life of a woman, you find these, these negative sort of behaviors, uh, you know, continue. Right. Right. And how, how about, um, I mean, what's one of the biggest, complaints that Muslim women from your work with them have about Muslim men? Oh, where do I begin? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Give us like maybe two or three that you can think of that are, that are pretty common. I mean, you know, I I don't want anybody to leave with the impression that when we get together, you know, we just mail bash. We don't. It's not really. Of course not. This is for our learning, us men. We need we need to learn, and this is kind of an inside scoop. So we're taking this as 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 nasiha and feedback, inshallah. Inshallah. No, alhamdulillah, we do though. We do talk about this because it's important. But I think, um, you know, a lot of women just don't feel very understood uh, by men. You know, Uh, something that I I also um, have. Have observed, but I just think our men need more literacy. We need more education for our brothers, uh, just about just the general physical, emotional, biological differences between the you know the genders or the sexes. It's so important, and I feel like women tend to be much more literate about you know just the different ways that men and women um, you know act, behave, think, communicate, the way the, our needs in relationships, uh, love intimacy, sexuality, all of these things. I just feel like women, we take the time more to learn about these things. Um, whereas men seem to really not understand very much. And then, you know, um, I know it causes a lot of problems. I'm sure you've seen it in your couples counseling where it's just this rift of, um, you know, just two individuals who maybe, you know, I'm sure, and I know there are couples that both of them have this problem, but I just feel in my experience, again, that it tends to be, you know, more on the men's side. And I think it's because society in general, you know, we're not really, uh, we don't really inculcate these types of things in our, in our young boys and men, you know, to be emotionally intelligent and to really understand these things. I just feel like there's this different expectation of men to be, you know, strong and physically, you know, able to do certain things, but emotionally, um, these, these connections aren't really made. And so I think that's probably the biggest issue that a lot of women have is they just wish that men um were just more under they understood women more right 
And and what would you suggest are some of the ways to do that besides, of course, you know, maybe reading some books or listening to some lectures? Um, how how about like within a marriage, like in your opinion, like if some um, guys like, yeah, you know, this is striking me. I, I, I think I fall into that box. Like I really don't understand my wife. I don't have emotional intelligence. I don't usually read when she's upset or not, or I, I interpret, you know, her venting as me having to solve a problem when sometimes it's not, it's just about support. I mean, obviously you guys, you know, there's a number of ways to do that, but, uh, I'd love to hear some of your advice on, on how Muslim men can improve perhaps in, in some of these regards. Sure. Well, I think, you know, I do think it starts with education. Um, I do think you have to learn first and then observe. You know, you have to kind of make those connections when you see a behavior to not jump to conclusions or to project, you know, or to interpret it through your own lens. But this, this is, you know, what empathy is. Empathy is really becoming connected with the other. And so I think it does start with learning and, you know, reading. There's wonderful resources that really do help um, men understand women and vice versa. You know, I don't want it to just be a one-sided conversation, but we're speaking about men. I, and I, you know, I love, there's, I'm sure, I mean, they're, they're popular books, but I do think they do, um, sort of offer, you know, especially just the basics, you know, for men and they're written by other men. So that's why I feel like it's, they're helpful. Um, books like, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus or, um, the five love languages, um, by, uh, Dr. Gary Chapman, uh, Dr. John Gray is the one who wrote Men Are From Mars, uh, excuse me, Men Are From, yeah, Mars Women Are From Venus. But that, those types of books, I think, just do give men something to work with in terms of really understanding female behavior. And then you, you look at, you know, after you read these types of books and talk, and read about empathy, what empathy really means, read about, you know, just, uh, the, like I said, the, the gender differences in communication, then you apply it by observing, like you really, and I think this is something that couples can do together. I don't necessarily think you have to do it separately, but like really, first of all, giving it importance, like this is important for us to do as couples together and to really validate the need for it. And then to work on, you know, exchanging ideas, having conversations, um, looking back maybe on previous, you know, um, arguments or disagreements and trying to analyze it, you know, in hindsight, I think that's always helpful because, you know, sometimes we, um, you know, we're, we're reactionary and we're quick to, again, uh, just, um, we, we, you know, we both come from our own perspectives, but we don't see the other. So when you can look back on a, a situation and say, okay, now I understand, you know, after, um, you know, knowing more the context of why you, you said what you said or why you felt what you felt, now I can see it, that type of, those types of exchanges, I think just really foster, again, empathy, foster understanding and mutual respect so, you know, education, observation, but doing it together as a couple, I think is really important. Absolutely. No, that's great. And I think a key word there is also this idea of empathy. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what is empathy and what's the difference perhaps between that and sympathy? Because I know it can be confusing. And I know this is a very important quality to have as a human being, first and foremost. But, you know, most likely, I think men can use a tune up in this regard. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about what is the difference between sympathy and empathy and how would empathy look and feel in, in real time? Sure. I think I translate empathy as really um, taking on the emotion of the other as opposed to sympathy, which is really just, you know, feeling pity for someone, feeling bad, but not really um you know, just almost internalizing it. And I think when you're, when you're empathic, you internalize the other person's pain. You actually take the time 
to really understand where they're coming from and what they're feeling. And that's why you'll have some people who are, you know, such, you know, they call them empaths, but they can almost have, um, you know, physical, like a psychosomatic response to another person's pain or stress. I mean, that's how powerful of an emotion it can be. But if you're not taught how to, you know, uh, how to sort of tap into that, then you might just observe someone who's going through something um, and just feel bad, you know, for the moment, but then you're quick to move on. It's sort of like, oh, sorry. And then, you know, you, you've, <laughs> you haven't really sat in that emotion enough to feel it. So I, I think, you know, empathy is really just, you know, feeling the pain. For example, um, like in a, in a marital context, when you see, um, you know, I think one of the complaints that I usually get from women, especially once children come into play, is that they don't feel that their husbands really understand the uh, emotional and physical exhaustion of being a new mom. Mm. Um, and they kind of, you know, they'll make sort of comments that, that are just, you know, they're not very empathic, you know, they'll be like, Oh, sorry, you had a bad day. But then they're not really understanding or wanting to even understand what um, the emotional sort of toll it takes from, you know, all night not getting enough sleep, you know, to kind of just, you know, wait, waking up periodically through the night and then having your entire day be consumed by watching this child worrying about its safety, taking care of its every need. And then on top of that, trying to manage the house and on top of that cooking, it's like, there's just so much that can go into a woman's day, but they'll find that, you know, their, their spouses will come just sort of, you know, not really, you know, empathic. And, 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 and if they see something they don't like, they're quick to point those things out without really looking at all of the sacrifices and the pain. So, you know, that would be a good opportunity to really, um, to, uh, to experience, you know, uh, what a woman goes through. So I always tell sisters, it's really important if you want to encourage, you know, more empathy from your spouse to actually not try to make everything so easy for them. If you, if you get it a day where they're going to watch the kids, you know, let them have the same experience that you just did. Don't cook lunch and dinner and have everything ready and make it. Cause that's what women do. You know, we want to have everything easy for for spouses or a lot of women will do that because you know, they, they deal with guilt. So it's like, Oh, I want to go out with my friends. I want to go have, you know, time away from the family, but I feel so guilty that I need to make everything so simple for my, my spouse and my child so that, you know, my presence isn't really that missed. But what that does to me is it, it's kind of, you know, um, counterproductive because you want to leave your spouse with the same experience that you have every single day so that they really do now understand like, wow, that was really difficult. You go through this, you know, five, six days a week. And I'm spe speaking specifically about women who are at home with their children, right? I mean, I know, Michelle, there's other women who work and they have different, you know, uh, sort of um, dynamic. But for this particular, uh, which is a common, you know, complaint that I get from a lot of sisters, like I said, that they just don't feel that their spouses really truly understand the weight that they um, that they, you know, experience every day. And I think it works both ways because men also, you know, they, you know, having to work outside the home every single day and wake up in the morning. And I, I actually wrote a post recently about, you know, that about just really appreciating the sacrifices of anybody um, who who's working it to uh, provide, you know, for their families and their loved ones, because it that's also a, a really big toll. You know, I, I, I sometimes will look at my husband. I'm like, God, I don't know how you do it, because to have to rush every single day, and then, you know, be out, um, you know, out of the home. I'm very comfortable. Alhamdulillah, I get to be, you know, I have a more flexible schedule. But for him, he's, you know, deadlines, meetings, there's just so much and it's it's difficult. So I think anybody uh, working also has challenges. And until you've worked in, in that sort of grind, you know, the grind and done the same thing, you don't really know 
how difficult that is. But this is, these are the types of discussions that foster, again, empathy when both the husband and the wife can really, you know, talk about their day in that, you know, in, in this type of detail, but it's received not as a complaint, not as a, you know, nagging sort of thing, but rather like, really, I'm, I'm a human being and I've had, you know, a really difficult day and I just want to share it with you. And I want to know that you're going to receive it, um, and, and show me compassion, love and understanding. That's empathy, you know, not just, sorry, you had a bad day. Why is this, you know, that way? Or why do, why didn't you pay the bills or why, you know, and that's what I think we sometimes tend to do is we don't hear, you know, we don't hear each other well enough. And, and, uh, and so it causes problems. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's, that's a great clarification. And what's interesting is, you know, and this connects to another topic that I want to open up right now is, I mean, obviously, whenever you have certain cultural or relational patterns, you know, behavioral, mental, emotional, or otherwise, um, and there is a void or an emptiness based on certain patterns or systems, uh, naturally, you're going to have reactionary um, responses, right, to those things. In other words, we got to fill the void. Things don't come out of a vacuum. Um, and, you know, right now there's a very strong, you know, momentum of, you know, feminism. And uh, and it's also, you know, quite prominent in, in some Muslim communities and some Muslim women that identify um, with Islam. And so you, you get a lot of, you know, terms now that are kind of linked up with feminism. And, and one very common one that I've heard is this idea that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was a feminist. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. How is this idea valid or invalid in your opinion? You know, I understand there's, you know, like you said, there's this need for, for, uh, for women, uh, you know, again, to find their voice. And, and here comes this, this movement that really speaks to a lot of the needs that, and frustrations that women have, which are valid, you know, they're right. valid. But I don't like the idea of connecting, you know, this political, you know, movement, this ideology, um, to, to the, to the Prophet because his teachings, as we, as Muslims believe, are perfect and they're divinely inspired, you know? So I feel like when people, you know, attribute feminism to him, it's like they're almost retroactively applying this very modern label to him, which just doesn't make sense to me because his teachings preceded feminism. And we're talking about over a thousand years ago, this divinely inspired message that really, um, you know, the root of it is love. The root of it is mutual respect. It's compassion. Um, and its aim is to bring women and men closer to God, to really bring them together and then closer to God. So, and I don't see modern feminism like that. Um, I think, like I said, there's definitely positive qualities to a lot of the messages, but whenever, you know, and, and there are elements to, um, to modern feminism that I think are counter, they're again, they're, they're not congruent with Islam because um, they're hypocritical to be frank you know uh if you are trying to in one way you know elevate and honor women but you need to do that by um you know through misandry you know which is you know hate and contempt for men then it's just you know the opposite side of the same coin because misogyny and misandry are the same thing you know you know so if you can't to me you can't 
you know, advocate for women and, and empower women by, by pushing men down and making men look like irrelevant to women, you know? And mm. I think there's a lot of messaging in modern day feminism where it's like, we don't need men. And I don't agree with that. I think men and women absolutely need each other, you know, and there's beautiful qualities to both, but I feel like there is this sort of ultra ultra, and maybe I'm, you know, speaking of a fringe element of it, but it's still, it's still there. And there are many women who I think do, um, you know, uh, do have that sort of mentality about men where it's just like, we, we can do everything and anything. We don't need men. And I don't, I just don't believe in that part of, um, the branding or the messaging, you know, I just don't think it's necessary. And it's, it's definitely not, um, in line with Islam because we see each other as, you know, partners in this world. And, and like I said, we have a mutual common goal, which is, which is, uh, to, to reach God. And so we, we should look at our, each other as partners um, and not as adversaries, which I think sometimes, you know, the messaging and there's certain, you know, uh, you know, and I, like I said, I think it is politically motivated um, that they uh, th- that it kind of gets to that more extreme um, negative uh, place. But um, you see Muslim women sometimes now, you know, posting certain things too, all in the spirit of, you know, feminism, Muslim feminism. But I just don't think the messaging is the same. Right. And I mean, on, 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 in a historical context, I mean, if we were to kind of rewind and go back to the 7th century, I mean, I could understand how what the Prophet ﷺ did as far as social change and justice, and, and especially when it came to gender, um, I could I can totally resonate with this idea of, yeah, I can see how some people are like, oh, the Prophet Muhammad was a feminist given the circumstances he was in and how, you know, um, the power of femininity and the importance of women and mothers and daughters and so on and so forth. He did come to to heal a lot of the social uh, diseases that existed at the time, you know, Sallallahu Alaihi So that is, you know, in, in one perspective, I can see that. But I think you're absolutely right. We, we can't necessarily conflate the, the, the contextual framing of the time back then with what is associated with certain constructs in feminism today. And, and I know, as you said, like, there are, of course, um, more unhealthy or negative positions in, in feminism today, but there's also healthy and positive ones, which, which, of course, bring benefit. And I think that sometimes when we just, even when we say the word feminism, I mean, that's a huge term, right? And it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean like you're against anything that has to do with the the essential values or, or principles of feminism that are at least healthy, you know, or aligned with the Islamic tradition. But I'm I'm almost hearing you say like, yeah, but when it gets to a place where it starts to contradict or claims that it is superior to, let's say, something that is clearly defined or established in the Islamic tradition or even human nature and common sense, right? Um, you know, this is when it becomes quite problematic and perhaps even dangerous. Of course, because, I mean, it's 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 an ideology, right? And so you can't just you know cherry pick what you like about it. If you're going to adopt it um, and you're going to call yourself a feminist, then people are going to assume that you you know, adopt everything that 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 term engenders. And I think that's my problem with it is that it has these parts to it or that there's parts of, of people, you know, there's elements to it that are negative and they're contradictory to Islam. So in lieu of calling yourself a feminist, just, you know, alhamdulillah, we, we follow, have a faith tradition that, uh, you know, 1400 years ago, like you said, 
you know, liberated women from, you know, patriarchy and, you know, the negative elements of, of, of patriarchy and alhamdulillah, just speak to, to what your true beliefs are. But I think when you, whenever you take on labels that are defined already, um, you have to remember people are going to assume that you, you know, they're not going to know what part of that label you, you fought, you accept and what you don't, you know, because you're calling yourself, um, by that label. So they're just going to assume that you, uh, that that's, you know, that you're loyal to that. Just like if, you know, political party, same thing. If I call myself a Democrat and I'm a proud Democrat, people are going to assume that I love the Democratic Party and I love everything about the Democratic Party, right? So I think we have to be careful, I guess, in in how we label ourselves, whatever we label ourselves. And in in this particular case, I just don't know if, or I, I don't believe that um, that we need to, we just don't need to, because alhamdulillah, our tradition is so much higher. I mean, we we're we're talking about, you know, um, uh, like I said, divine inspiration. We're talking, we're not talking about just a political sort of pushback, you know. Um, so I just feel like it's they're just not on equal footing, and you're picking the the one that you don't need to, whereas you have this other one that's rooted in 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 something so beautiful. And like I said you know, it's about love, it's about mutual respect. And I think it's, it's more, it's just more in line spiritually uh, with what a Muslim should believe in, as opposed to just this sort of political, you know, viewpoint. Right. Now, have you personally faced any, um, you know, friction or tension with some Muslim sisters that you know, who really are very strong identifiers with the ideology of feminism? And, you know, what What was maybe some content to those, some of those discussions or, or ideas, if, if you have any to share? You know, alhamdulillah, in my experience, I, I can't think of any oppor- any time where I, you know, I've had any, uh, you know, disagreement with anybody. I think when you, um, you know, people get emotional about certain things. And I think I always try to, you know, find a middle ground. So I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't like to debate over certain things. I'm not one of those people. I do if I have a position, I'll defend it, but I also don't want to, you know, tear anybody else down. I just feel like there's sometimes people hold on to certain things, maybe because of their own personal, you know, journey. You know, I know some sisters who've been abused or who've had really difficult experiences that they sort of, you know, might adopt more, um, you know, sort of hardline views about certain things. So I don't ever want to, um, you know, uh, just be insensitive to that. So I, you know, it's really about hearing, listening, having mutual respect. So I've never really had that. And I think mashallah, when, in my experience, again, when women do get together and we are, um, you know, there to learn from, learn from one another, even if our viewpoints might differ, I think there's always the end result is not, is not to, uh, walk away, you know, upset and you know um just defeated or but it's more just okay you know mutual respect i i i'll be you know i I, you 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 can keep your position i'll keep mine but there's still a sense of respect so alhamdulillah i've never really witnessed like anything or had that experience myself i'm not saying that doesn't occur i'm sure it does but i think i always try to um end on a positive note even if there is difference of opinion right no and i and i love the example you gave that you know look we have to recognize that people have different psychological, emotional um, history, right? And, and, and impressions and frame of reference. And, you know, somebody who had a very, very traumatic experience from the masculine energy, you, it's very understandable that they're going to cloak themselves in a community or an ideology that gives them that sense of, you know, safety, 
and protection and ability to evolve and grow um, into themselves, right? I mean, that's that's uh, that's understandable. It's kind of like you know, like some people, um, let's say, who are like, oh, you know, you listen to music, like, oh my God, astaghfirullah like how could you, and blah blah blah. And it's like, well, you know, maybe that person was. Uh, abused when they were a child and listening to music was the only thing that helped self-soothing you know after they experienced some of this abuse and that's why music is a very important and significant part of their life so it's not just always this simple like oh this doesn't correspond with the fiqhi position that i ascribe to therefore i'm going to judge you existentially it's like we have to be more um you know certainly compassionate and, and recognize there is so many layers to an individual besides a surface or public persona that many of us tend to encounter with. And I think you as somebody, as well as myself, who've worked with many individuals in very private, confidential spaces, we know for a fact that there is so much stuff to people that nobody has a clue about, right, in the in the public sphere. Um, but at the same time, you know, this kind of comes to, you know, this other idea of, you know, not just with feminism, but perhaps, you know, different progressive or, you know, liberal momentums and trends that are happening even in the Muslim community. You get this idea now of like, okay, Islam has to be reformed, so to speak, right? And reformation is this idea of, it also includes this idea of change, right? Um, and sometimes change of the actual narrative itself. Um, and I've always, you know, kind of thought to myself, well, is it a matter of Islamic reform or is it a matter of returning to Islam? Because I know for a fact that, I mean, subhanAllah, I've learned that you never stop learning. And, you know, there's things that in modern, the modern questions that we have today, whether it's on gender, sexuality or atheism or whatever, this stuff has been addressed so many times throughout Islamic history and through Islamic scholarship. And sometimes when we have no knowledge of our own history and our own tradition and its depth and magnitude and vastness, we assume that there's no answers or guidance or solutions. And so, of course, naturally, you're going to think, okay, well, then this has to be reformed because it doesn't have the answers I'm looking for, right? But it's like, well, how much investigation really took place? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, so, you know, what are your thoughts about this idea that, you know, some people today, they may say, well, based on the on the modern zeitgeist or trends about, you know, A, B or C, whether it's sexuality or men and women and, and roles or, you know, believing in this or that, you know, aspect of Sharia, it's like, well, this has to be reformed um, versus am I going to return to a um, proper or healthy interpretation application of the religion. What are your thoughts? I agree with you 100%. I think, you know, again, this notion of reform or, you know, this this sort of progressive agenda within our community is, uh, you know, just misplaced because, like you said, if you really look through the vast, and, you know, none of us, you know, like you said, it's a lifelong process. No matter how long we live, we'll never really understand fully the scope of just how much, our scholars um, have done for us, you know, to really, uh, you know, um, provide answers to complicated questions and guidance. And, uh, you know, I, even in my own, um, whenever I speak, I always, you know, tell whether it's younger students or, or, um, you know, older women or that I'm dealing with, you know, whatever the audience is or whoever the audience is, I always tell them, you know, feel free to ask any question that you have, any question. Now, there's no wrong question. There's no bad question. If you're curious about something, the beautiful part of our tradition is we don't turn people away from asking questions, you know. Um, but I always tell them that if, that if I'm not able to answer that, I'm not a scholar by any means, but if I'm not able to answer it, 
I will do my best to get an answer for you because alhamdulillah, I do, uh, you know, I do have uh, relationships with different scholars and I am able to, to, uh, to ask them questions. So the information's there. It's just a matter of, like you said, really doing the research, really, really, you know, uh, making it, um, a priority to not jump to the conclusions that, oh, because, you know, I don't, I, I didn't learn this, that it must not be there. That's pretty presumptuous. Maybe it's just that you didn't, you know, the, the sources weren't, you know, the, the right, you know, you, you didn't have the correct sources or you just um, didn't look enough. So I think it's very humbling when you step back and say, you know, this tradition alhamdulillah has lasted for 1400 years, that it's, um, it's, uh, it's been through, you know, we, as Muslims, I mean, if you look just, you know, in the Muslim world, mashallah, we've lived, co you know, coexisted with other traditions and gone through so much political strife. And there's just been so many changes. But alhamdulillah, the religion is still going strong. We're still considered, you know, the, the largest growing religion in the world. People are coming to Islam all the time. Why? Because they are finding the answers. They are finding solace. And they don't, you know, come in with, with an agenda to change it, but they they uh, recognize that it's transformative in and of itself. And I think this is where each individual really has to, you know, look to their own experience and say, you know, what what's my end, like, what's my end goal with wanting, um, you know, uh, with wanting uh, Islam, you know, if, they, if they're in this, uh, you know, sort of line of thinking that Islam needs a reform, they should ask themselves, what what is the, what's the end, you know, uh, like well, what's their objective do they want is there something specific to themselves and i think oftentimes it is it's you know they have their own need that they want fulfilled maybe there's a specific thing that they don't agree with for example um you know i don't know drinking alcohol maybe they want you know islam to suddenly say no alcohol is perfectly fine so let's reform it you know i think it sometimes comes down to really individual subjective wishes and desires that people have and so if they don't find it in the tradition or they don't agree with the position that islam has then they push for reform but this is again very self-serving um and i don't think it's fair to um to make the claim that islam is just you know uh antiquated or its views are just too old and you know it's not um in line with modernity no that's just you wanting um, something, you know, for yourself and you don't find it. So you're going to try to push, uh, you know, this other angle. So I don't know. I just feel like it, oftentimes a lot of the, the, the positions that I find that the progressives are pushing seem to come from that very self-serving place, you know, and it's not really looking at the, the collective needs of the, of, of the, um, of the community or looking at, you know, real, you know, from a scholarly or academic you know, place like looking at real positions, but it's just more, I'm missing something and I want it. So I'm going to force a chain. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like I've seen some, you know, works, for example, of some, you know, prominent, uh, writers who identify as Muslim feminists. And, you know, for instance, sometimes it goes to the extent of like, well, sometimes we may have to say no to the Quran or we need to reject this aspect or that aspect because it doesn't fit my individual or ideological needs and that's where it can become i think quite problematic because we know that the way the world works it's not always about whether or not this feels like if, if this doesn't make me feel good or this doesn't make me happy or i don't agree with this then i'm just going to change it and a simple example it's like okay let's say you want to do a phd 
mm-hmm. right? And you and I say, okay, well, this is what you got to do. You have to get you know recommendation letters. You have to probably take a GRE exam. You need to apply. You need to do this and that. And you say, no, 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 Kareem, I don't feel like doing that. I don't want to do any of that. That's I don't want to follow that structure or that system. I just want what I want. I want my PhD. Right. And it's like, well, I'm really sorry to break it to you, but it's unlikely and probably impossible that you're ever going to achieve that thing that you want unless you follow you know, the system that's in place for that thing, right? Um, And so you can't just kind of, I think nowadays we're almost making um, subjectivity Mm -hmm. more important than objective and even scientific axioms that have been established, right? And so now it's going to this place where, you know, if my feelings um, are not honored and respected, even though it may not correspond or contradict what many human beings have considered objective reality um, and even scientific uh, evidence. You know, now that's become a, a realm of, of discussion for some people, right? It's like, well, that's not how I feel, or you have to honor the way I feel, even though it goes against objectivity. And I've, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by this recent phenomena. You know, it's, it's subhanallah the way you know, that this is happening in, in, a, in a number of topics. Um, but, you know, with all that said, I think that certainly as someone who does, you know, consider myself a, you know, a Muslim who's, you know, as, as much as possible trying to be serious about seeking knowledge and learning and, and refining myself through this tradition as, as my kind of own existential manual, I do, I do also recognize that, again, this idea of reforming, sometimes it comes from this kind of self-agenda or subjective, you know, uh, yearning, so to speak. But sometimes I think it also has to do with, yeah, well, don't, you know, the other perspective, I think, for people who... Um, are, are serious about the their practice of Islam must also recognize that, okay, as much as we're not going to change the narrative, literally change the narrative, perhaps we do have to re-engage with the texts, with the traditions, and have updated interpretations and applications of of these timeless values, right, in our current context. I think that's extremely valid position to have and important because because again if we accept if you are a muslim you accept that the quran is for all places and all times therefore it must be interpreted and harnessed and utilized for every age as well but that requires you know effort and sincerity of course right so- no i agree i agree 100 percent with you and that's why we have to look to the people who can do that, which are our scholars, you know, and I think when you, when you, um, I mean, I, there's no dispute in Islam that that's, this is, this is the, um, you know, the, 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 the challenge of our, our scholars today is that they have to absolutely look at the world and really, you know, look at all these different things that come up and try to provide answers for people today. And so there are much less scholars that do that, but I don't think individuals can do that. I think that's the danger of, of not really appreciating scholarship uh, in Islam or not really seeing the, the value of scholarship in Islam is that people, um, you know, tend to think they can just do this on their own, just open up the Quran, pick out a hadith, and they can just come to their own conclusions. And it's, it's dangerous when you do that. And it causes a lot of problems and, and, you know, divisiveness in the community because, you know, so-and-so, like you said, the subjectivity issue comes up, you know, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that, and now I'm confused. And so you have people really, struggling because of, uh, you know, pop-up sort of sheikhs that come along or, you know, people who are making fatwas and, you know, making claims about uh, this and that when they don't have the expertise to do that. So I think this is something that we really have to look to our scholars. And that's where we as, you know, the the uh, the majority can really, you know, put that expectation on them. And we should and we should encourage 
our, um, you know, our, uh, I mean, dialogue is so important. They have to hear from us and we have to hear from them. But, you know, I think a lot of times, um, you know, that's also a problem is that we don't have this sort of two-way conversation happening that it's sometimes it's, it's difficult to access scholars. They're not really, you know, um, as much engaged with, with the community as they should be. So these are all things that, you know, um, you know, create, uh, or, or sort of exacerbate uh, the problem, but you know, as a community, if we, I think we, we need to speak up as much as possible in our uh, masajids, you know, as much as we can to really push for these types of conversations. So one of the things that Hamdala I try to do is, you know, um, with the programming, especially with the youth, I just feel like that's a, that's a demographic that absolutely needs our engagement. But you know, we need to push for these types of conversations, uh, you know, or conversations with them and, you know, that are, that are not always comfortable, you know, for people to have, um, things, for example, about sexuality, you know, sexual orientation, things that are really hot topic, um, you know, hot button topics nowadays are, are, are difficult for a lot of people to, um, to have, those conversations are, are difficult for people to have because they don't know how to have those conversations. And so sometimes you find, you know, people just um, not really finding uh, that our scholars are engaging on these types of important issues. And so they, they there's a disconnect. But I think if we push for these types of, uh, you know, more and more programming, for example, about uh, topics that do require modern answers, then I think they'll listen. But I don't know. I just, um, I don't know what your experience has been, but I just feel like there's a disconnect there, you know, in terms of of having this um, open dialogue with our, our, our scholars about these types of things. Right. No, for sure. Because, I mean, if those conversations aren't being, they're not being held, then people are going to seek it otherwise, right? Elsewhere right. Or, or somewhere else. And obviously the first person who comes along and, and gives some, you know, reasonable answers or things that kind of like, oh, that kind of makes sense, you know, um, then that might become the established idea or truth about that concern or that question right so if also as i think as a muslim community if we you know instead of complaining about let's say belief systems that contradict or undermine our own we have to of course continue to strengthen our own position and open up dialogue with these other ideas these other individuals within and without the community in order to you know refine our own positions as well as have um healthy solutions and guidance on these matters like for instance something as simple as like sex sexual education right mm -hmm. i mean how many how many of us talk about sex at the masjid right? right um and and then we we assume our kids are not going to know about sex until they're 30 or 25 years old i mean that's <laughs> absurd right they're the not of their wedding yeah, yeah they're gonna learn whether you're involved or not so you better get involved because that space is going to get filled at some point right no matter what the subject is absolutely and that's why there you know this idea that um islam needs reform i think just it's getting more and more popular because there's silence, you know, there's too much silence on one side and we need to push for more dialogue because alhamdulillah, we do have the answers and there are now, um, you know, people equipped to be able to have these types of dialogues and to facilitate these conversations. But I just think we need to overcome the fear, you know, the, the fear of the other, you know, um, and, uh, and just, and just start talking more inshallah. And then you'll see that people will realize inshallah in their own time that alhamdulillah, we have nothing, you know, um, 
you know, to be, a, we're not, we're not afraid of anything. And I think that's where uh, people who push for pro- progress or, you know, the progressive movement, they just feel like Muslims are too afraid to embrace, you know, modern things, or they don't want change. And that's not true. We have, alhamdulillah, a tradition that's uh, intact, it's complete, and we have scholarship, but we just need to have dialogue. I think that's the missing piece. And if we just have more conversations, people, you know, will realize, alhamdulillah, that, um, the answers are there, and you know we're, we we can comfortably talk about uh, certain things, and that's why alhamdulillah, in my own um, you know ta'alif, it's a you know I don't call it a traditional study circle or halaqa, it's a gathering, and it's really a discussion group because I want sisters to feel like okay, it's not a masjid, but it is a sacred space. They pray there, but it's a place where you can come and really talk about anything. Like I, there's you know we do this thing called. Um, it's it's an empathy circle, but it's really an opportunity for them to, to to talk about anything. Where they'll write, you know, on these note cards anything they wanted to talk about, whether it's you know a, a pressing topic that they're really interested in or a private sort of issue that they're struggling with. But it's an opportunity for them to just write their you know grievances, you know suggestions, comments, questions, whatever it is, on a piece of paper, and then we open it up as a discussion for everybody, and we'll you know go through each one one by one. And I've had such great response from that because a lot of the people, you know, sisters are, are, they expressed to me that they've never really found a place where they can do that openly. They've always felt uncomfortable bringing up certain topics because they thought, you know, it was shameful or they shouldn't talk about it. So, you know, I just, I want them to have that association with a space like Talib, but I hope that these types of open sort of really, you know, comfortable dialogues can be had, you know, everywhere because that's really, the point of, um, you know, the mosque or the masjid is to bring people together and to be a place of learning and be a place of community. But if we make it just a place of prayer, you know, and that's all you do, then I think you're going to find people, like you said, they don't feel that there's a place for them there. And then they look out to other sources, you know, sources for information. And then you have this big divide. So... Right. And Tetleaf Collective, ladies and gentlemen, is located in Fremont as well as Chicago. And this is one of my favorite organizations in the United States. And I would argue that it's one of those places where there is progressive Islam in the sense of it's taking traditional and orthodox Islam and offering this contextual framing for Muslims, for converts, and for discussions and seminars and and different healthy community building to to exist. So that's great. And and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala heal and bless um, the founder, Sidi Osama Khan, and his family for the wonderful work that they've done. And and may it always be a sadaqah jariyah for him and his family. Ameen, ya rabbal alameen. So Tatleef Collective, ladies and gentlemen, is a great place to check out if you're in Fremont, if you're in Chicago, as well as online. They have great resources. Sister Husay, this has been an, a lovely discussion, and I really appreciate all your honest feedback um, and teaching us a bit more about, you know, maybe some inside scoops as to some Muslim women's ideas and needs. And I hope the brothers out there, you know, take this to heart and inshallah do something um, of high impact uh, regarding some of these ideas and, and concepts that we brought up. I mean, what I'm also very interested in is um, in Islamic history, we have, of course, certainly had 
female scholarship. And I think this is extremely important because it's like that yin and yang, you know, um, we need the yin and the yang's interpretive efforts and power to guide us through this tradition. And we've had Islamic female scholars in the past. We have some today. And Sister Hosaya, I was wondering if you could maybe share a couple of those examples for our reference, um, either from past or present, so that we are just more aware of the female Islamic scholarship that's happening and, and why this is so important for us to also engage and learn from. Sure. Uh, mashallah. Um I'm so blessed because alhamdulillah, I get to work with so many different organizations. But one of my favorite organizations is actually here rooted in the Bay Area. And it's um, the Rahma Foundation, which is, um, you know, alhamdulillah, started by a, a group of wonderful women. Um, and also, you know, they their, their entire uh, platform is really to provide programming for young girls and women, but to encourage, you know, this sort of, you know, again, um, to inspire girls that we absolutely uh, have a wonderful and we need to, you know, learn for ourselves and, and learn from other women. And so there's um, immense, you know, amount of uh, blessing just working with them over the years. I've learned personally myself from some of the teachers that they've brought. Locally, we have, for example, Sheikha um, Mona Azankari, she's here in the Bay Area, she offers classes. We have, of course, um, Dr. Ghania Awad, who's uh, you know, as uh, a psychologist as well as, alhamdulillah, a, a scholar in Islam. She's learned, mashallah, from the best scholars in Syria and, and other parts. We have, um, uh, there's, in Southern California, there's a good friend of mine. Her name is Sheikha Muslima Permal, um, and she and her husband, alhamdulillah, have founded the Majlis, which is another uh, organization. But there are definitely many strong uh, female scholars who are, you know, they're classically trained. They've actually gone through um, rigorous studies, alhamdulillah, abroad and locally, and they they teach and they offer classes. It's just a matter of knowing these organizations and looking at the programming that they provide. Uh, they have online courses. They teach, you know, one on one. They teach, you know, in group settings. So there are definitely, um, alhamdulillah, you know, these resources available next week, actually, here in the Bay Area. For those who are in the Bay Area, we will be having um, a program with, uh, with uh, Sheikha Muslim, uh, excuse me, Sheikha Muna with the Rahma Foundation and another wonderful teacher from Southern California uh, whose name is Ustada Iman Sidqi. And she's also, mashallah, a scholar of Islam. So these are, you know, there's, there's just so many examples, um, but these are the ones that come to mind. So, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, may Allah, you know, bless all of them because uh, they're definitely bringing in um, the women and, and giving, you know, real life examples for them. Of course, we can look historically too at, at, at different uh, uh, women in our history, but I think it's just it's much more powerful when you sit uh, you know, with a, a female scholar who's, you know, memorized the entire Quran or who's gone through all of the classical sciences and, um, you know, has, has achieved the highest marks. And I mean, just to see that in real life and then to have opportunities to ask them questions um, and to learn from them is just such a blessing. So I encourage the sisters who are listening to look into these organizations and these scholars and, and follow them. Many of them have presence online. Uh, inshallah, and, and attend their programs. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Sister Hussai. That was amazing feedback, and I appreciate you sharing some of those names. Check them out, ladies and gentlemen. Again, Sister Hussai Majedidi, she is a spiritual counselor, a mentor, a lecturer. She's involved with women's work here in the Bay Area, and she's also um, an author and freelance writer. And we'll be sharing um, her website, inshallah, on the show. Sister Hussai, thanks again for your presence. 
Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel and growth. Don't forget to visit coffeewithkareem.com to see the latest news and updates about this podcast. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem. That's patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem.